On today's Check the Pantry, we're going evergreen. The juniper berry isn't a berry at all. It's a cone, just like a pine cone. It just so happens that the individual scales are so small, we can't see them. It looks like a berry, so we call it a berry. It's not the first time our eyes have deceived us. Its biggest claim to culinary fame is as the principal flavoring in gin, maybe the most divisive of the common spirits. There's a lot more you can do with juniper, though, and we will. My name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to Check the Pantry. About half of this week's show is a tasting of several different gins. When I decided I was going to do an episode about juniper, gin being both a classic summer beverage and something that goes well with some rather prominent Alaskan flavors, I had to think a little bit about how I was going to deal with the fact that a lot of people hate it. The prominence of juniper and the characteristic texture of gin is off-putting for many, and I didn't want the show to be something that people who don't like gin would just turn off. So when I started asking around for people to participate in the tasting, I asked for somebody who loves gin, and I also asked for somebody who hates it, but who was willing to taste it and talk about it. And I got lucky. Both a gin lover, Grady Avant, and a gin hater, Pat Ahern, piped up immediately that they were into the idea. Food preferences are powerful things. I can tell you right now that you aren't likely to get a Check the Pantry episode about olives anytime soon. Because an hour of me repeating over and over, I hate olives, is not anybody's idea of good radio. And yet, that's pretty much exactly what I asked Pat to do here, and he rose to the challenge better than I probably would. In some ways, one of the difficulties in food media is that restaurant criticism aside, everybody involved mostly likes what they're eating, and likes to cook, too. It's easy to fall into the trap of assuming that everyone shares that enjoyment, and I wanted someone who cannot stand gin because I think it's important to acknowledge that one person's gorgeous aromatics are another person's bilge water. The other reason I wanted someone who hates gin, though, is to counter the tempting notion that just because we don't like something, people who do enjoy it are somehow fooling themselves. It took me a long time, but I can now grudgingly admit that there are differences between different kinds of olives, and some of them are even clearly superior to canned black olives while still being something that will go totally ignored on my plate. I have even come close to enjoying an olive when it was stuffed full of blue cheese, in much the same way that Pat comes close to enjoying a gin cocktail later, although I'd have liked it even better if we had just dispensed with the olive altogether and eaten the cheese. So I hope, even if you find juniper disgusting, you'll enjoy Pat Ahern representing your people against the overwhelming majority I arrayed against him, myself, Grady Avant, and the grog shops Patrick Driscoll and Mel Stratum. It was hot in the greenhouse that day, and unlike my tomato plants, Pat did not wilt. So we are in my greenhouse today. It is hot. I believe <laughs> is uh, is the consensus, and we're and I, I I deliberately made it pretty hot. Gin is a classic summer beverage, in places <laughs> even hotter than here, and so we're simulating India. And of course, gin and tonic was famously invented as a way to get British imperialists to drink their quinine, which is an anti-malarial. But I'm here with Patrick Driscoll, Pat Ahern, Grady Avant, and Mel Stratum. And we are here uh, sampling some gins that Patrick Driscoll is putting together into various concoctions. So I'm going to turn it over to Patrick and let him run the show. Patrick, over to you. So just kind of some general background about gin. I think a lot of people believe it originated with the British, though it actually didn't. It comes from the Dutch. Uh, Jennifer is the spirit from which it was originally based. But it took off like crazy in England. 
We're going to try it through a couple of different styles of gin. Um, we're going to start with one of the most classic, which is Boodles, which is one of the original London dry gins. To be London dry, by definition, it just needs to be over 80 proof and not have any sugar added. Obviously, juniper is the, the key ingredient and the, the one necessary ingredient in, in the mix. Um, and then from there is where you get all the kind of the variation is, is what else is added. Uh, Boodles is kind of unique in that it actually adds no citrus flavors whatsoever to their gin. So it, it, it's all herbaceous. Um, and it was named after the uh, Boodles Men's Club in London where uh, it was created. Kind of the epitome of classic old school. I won't need that much. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll chime in and say, when I first started drinking gin over 40 years ago, my brother and I, if we had some extra money, Boodles was the gin we bought. Because it was, if you want to spoil yourself, it was Boodles. When you kind of get that nose, it's... It's nice. But, and very, very clearly juniper. <laughs> Pat looks dubious. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking it belongs in a Coleman lantern or perhaps a something that you might run with diesel. I am partial to gin because I've always loved the smell of juniper berries. You know, when I whenever I go backpacking or hiking in the mountains and I came across a juniper bush, I would crush the berries and just smell them. Oh, it's so nice. And, yeah, gin was actually one of the first things I, I drank back in the day as as probably a, 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 you know, underage uh, appropriate cocktail. Um, but, uh, you know, I, back then, you know, I mixed everything. You know, everything's like a Tom Collins. You disguise right. the, the alcohol <clears throat> and the taste. But now, you know, I, I totally appreciate, you know, the actual the nuances <laughs> of, of, yeah, exactly. It's What's funny is I, I actually, I hated gin for a long time without ever having had it because I, I started bartending in a country club much younger than you should be allowed to bartend. And gin at the end of the night was the smell that stayed on your hands. And so it was just like that smell of work. <laughs> and, yeah. and so whenever I'd smell it in a, in a drink later, later in life, I'd go, nah, I don't want to try that. But have certainly come around since. Am I supposed to put this in my mouth? <laughs> this is good smooth. I mean, I'm gin. doing my job. I'm, I'm keeping my mouth open and smelling it. And am I supposed to actually taste it? I would or? actually taste it. Actually take a, take taste a tiny it. taste. And that way, when, you, when we come to a different style of gin... Yeah, okay. then you can have a more. So you're telling me it can only get better. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be different. I'll try it. Whether better is a uh, subjective, <laughs> but I think this has that classic oily gin feel where it, I, I, as compared to vodka, which I think a lot of times can be really light and almost non-existent on the palate. Mm -hmm. Most gins are are pretty round and unctuous. They're only going to get more so from here, but this certainly has that. Do, do they actually distill the, the botanicals in the gin, or do they add them later? So there's three different ways of doing this. The classic, which is what Boodles does, is that you're going in a column still, and what you actually do is hang the aromatics in a basket above the distillate so that the hot air, or the, the evaporate, goes through and then recondenses. If, you, if you're going through a pot still, the kind of old-school way, which we're going to get to, you have to macerate whatever herbs and botanicals you want into the mash before you distill. And so you get a much more significant extraction, which sometimes can be pleasant and sometimes can not. <laughs> the last way is to actually just add, you know, flavoring at the end, which kind of brings us into our next gin because they kind of surprisingly do all three. So this next gin, um, Hendrix is... Kind of unique. Uh, for one thing, as I said, they use all three methods. So they have a column still and a pot still. And in the column still, they hang the aromatics and, and they use, let the distillate bring those in. And in the pot still, they macerate for 24 hours before distillation and then they blend the two. But what makes Hendrix kind of famous, or their claim to fame, is, is the infusion of cucumber and rose. Interestingly, those are actually added after. It, they are cucumber and rose extracts that are added. They're not a part of the distillation process. What I really liked about Hendrix is that, one, it kind of started the new wave of gin and the kind of resurgence of the, the boutique styles. And they also, there used to be a really significant tradition of making gin in Scotland. And it went away kind of in the same way that Napa can make great Riesling, but they can make a lot more money if they plant cab. Mm -hmm. So they ripped it all out. 
You make a lot more money for your grain if you put it into scotch than if you put it into gin. So it was thought at the time. Hendrix proved that model wrong. And now there's a really big resurgence of Scottish gins. But so what makes this, again, I mean, I said this before, but what makes this famous is that, that cucumber and rose note. And they've significantly reduced, I think, the proportion of juniper in their aromatics. Mm-hmm. So they want something that's a little bit more floral and softer. So I was going to say, it's definitely less aggressive. What do you think of this one compared to the other one? find it equally as foul as the previous. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. Uh, I can see how someone would like it, and I can't, I can't say that we'd be having a great time here if we were trying straight vodkas or something, but right. this is particularly nasty. Out of the, uh, the Boodles versus this one, which one is more disgusting? Uh, this one is uh, definitely more foul. It burns the lips more. Um, it has has a more, you could call it whatever you want. What were you calling it? You were calling it a flavoring of cucumber yeah. and, yeah. and rose. Okay, I'd say it's got a higher benzene count than Well, you are right, though. It's, it's also higher proof than yeah. what the Boodles was. Okay. So that... But it's not. So I mean, the, 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 it is boozier. There's there's no question about that. I'm not rushing out to buy either one of these. Yeah. It's so much smoother. Like how much boozier is this one? Than like it's only two percent, so oh. four proof. It's not a it's not a huge jump. As, as a funny aside, to yeah, go back to the boodles. That's not good at all. You want that? Sure. Put that put that in my glass. Yes. Wow. Um, boodles being this like quintessential British gin, I just think it's kind of funny to note that. They stopped selling in Great Britain about 100 years ago and were only selling in the U.S. and Asia. Hmm. And it wasn't until they were acquired by kind of a, a large brand that they were reintroduced in Britain. So the quintessential British gin was not available in London. <laughs> when did they uh, reintroduce it? What uh, 2004. Wow, that recently. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's reasons like gin that I can honestly say I'm not an alcoholic because <laughs> I wouldn't. You could leave it on my in my cabinet and on the darkest, coldest night of winter or the hottest day of summer. I'm still like not this, going for it. I'm still no. I'm not well, gonna. I'm not gonna drink it. Let's get through the next two and then let's see what you think about it actually in a cocktail. Because yeah. that that might actually that can make a difference. I'm so for just something cold right now too. Oh, yeah, be, absolutely. And, nice. and they will be cold. So the next two gins, I think, actually kind of bring us into where kind of modern trends in gin are, which is kind of trying to express a sense of place. So if you think about terroir and wine, you know, expressing a sense of where they come from, a lot of these small distilleries are now trying to really express where they're making the gin. So obviously it's not coming in the grain bill, but they're using it in what they choose to add in terms of aromatics. So the first one is actually an Alaskan product from Haynes. So this is their 50 Fathoms Gin from Port Chilkoot Distillery, which is absolutely dynamite. And it's done in the London dry style, so kind of like a Boodles. But instead of placing the significance on juniper, uh, they use fresh spruce tips. So they're expressing that sense of place in something that you can't get elsewhere. Is there still juniper involved, or is it? Just- no, there there is still juniper involved. They've been making a lot of stuff with spruce tips this spring, like really kind of trying to tap into what we have locally here, which is nice. That's what I really like about these the kind of new wave and what well, in spirits in general. But I, I think I see it more in gin than almost anything else, which is that really trying to use what's local as a way of expressing where you're from. This one's a little stronger to proof. It's 90 proof, too. Yeah, this is. So, this, yeah, I can taste that, too. It's very. But, but yeah, the flavor but I, but I think is you pretty do get the spruce notes. Uh, for you, sure. You I mean, it, 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 differentiates, it differentiates itself from, like, the boodles that is so clearly. I mean, this is a bad way of phrasing it, but I have a friend who always used to say, when I drink gin, I wake up in the morning thinking I just sucked on a Christmas tree. And <laughs> to me, boodles <laughs> is that Christmas tree smell. <laughs> and this, this, to me, really is more of that spruce tip. There's a sense of Alaska in it. Yeah, there might be something a little less traditional than the others with it, with the spruce. And uh, to me, this is like a poorly made moonshine, though. It it does have a moonshine uh, bite to it. But the juniper that I detected in the early ones is gone and replaced by spruce. Yeah. So it's certainly not good. But (laughs) but But it's different. It's different. And uh, this might disappear on the coldest, darkest winter day. I'm I'm not sure. It might. There's a crack in the the door. There might be. (laughs) What do you normally drink? If you Um, drink a spirit of some kind. 
I would drink um, high-end Irish whiskeys, mm. uh, going right down to a Canadian blend, um, vodka mixed, tequila, red wine. Mm-hmm. I don't drink much beer anymore. Certainly not gin, and that's not, <laughs> that's not going to change today. Yeah, my first impression was the uh, spruce tips. I mean, it it they really added, come through. It made the, the bouquet and the palate a lot stronger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. They, uh, if, if this is a gin, they've done a good job for a gin. <laughs> but again, I... No. Very good. And so then the last one we're going to taste is actually a really cool and, and unique uh, gin that uh, is made by Suntory in Japan. So... Kind of famous for making whiskey, but I actually think not they're... Not very good whiskey. I don't what's that? Not very good whiskey. Have you ever... I, I've had some that I've liked and some that I haven't. I think they're very expensive. So um, you're a gin lover. You're confused. <laughs> I love whiskey. I do. No, I, no, I, 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 I like whiskey quite a lot, too. I just... I, I don't always agree with their price points, mm. but I do like their products in general. But I actually think their gin is one of the most remarkable things they've done. Really? Oh. But again, we're talking about that going back to a sense of place. And so... Here, the botanicals that that they're emphasizing are Japanese, of course. So you get cherry blossom and yuzu and sencha tea. So actually green tea in two forms, cherry in two forms, and yuzu. And again, they they still have all the the traditional, but they've added, again, that sense of place, which I think, for me, that's really important in wine, and I think it is in spirits as well. Wow, that smells amazing. Yeah. I mean, it is so... That yuzu comes through so yeah. bright, and but there's also that floral note of cherry mm-hmm. blossom that so different from yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean it is, it, but really, it, it's completely a world apart. I would say the floral mm. on this is is nice, and now I'm gonna try it. Ooh. I'd say the uh, juniper is just very subdued in this because yeah. that's all the other aromatics are coming through and on the palate too. It's very smooth. I mean, mm-hmm. I think I think it's still clearly gin. I don't think you would. Mm-hmm. You'd have a problem, you know, if somebody gave this to you, you'd go, yeah, well, that it, it's gin. But it's funny, I had somebody who, who was in the grog shop the other day who asked me, well, what can you compare it to? And I kind of had to say nothing. In terms of what the actual flavor profile is, I don't know anything else like it on the market, and I think that's a really cool thing. It's the best gin I've ever had, and it's still gross. <laughs> I mean, it's just... I can see why people like it. It has a distinct taste and a distinct smell and flavor. This is... Uh... Probably the least gin-like of the four we've tasted today, which makes it almost palatable. Well, what I, I, I really like it at the back end that you get up front, it's all floral. And then they've got, to me, that green tea and sancho pepper, that Asian peppercorn, really come through in the finish. And it almost ends spicy. It's and sweet, too. It has, it's yeah. so complex, but it's, you can taste each individual flavor. Well, so with this, when they first released this on the American market, it was... $100 a bottle. And since it has become a hit, it has come down to $40 a bottle. It's just something still wrong about the whole thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I don't know. We got a crack in the door, though. Maybe. I mean, it's... Uh, Two cracks. There was oh, one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's a I crack mean, a we're not, here, we're not here to persuade Pat, but, no. but that he's gaining understanding is something. I can see how people would like it. That That's something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, but right. I, I get it. There are plenty of wines that I buy buy to resell that are not the wines that I want to drink, but I understand why somebody would want to. Mm-hmm. And and it's still important to be able to differentiate that the quality, whether you like it or not, to, to look at what's there. I mean, well, it's important for me and my job. It's not necessarily important at all for you. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes people do sort of, you know, they, they'll like poo-poo things like that. You know, like, oh, they're all the same, and, and they're clearly... Oh, these, these are definitely not all the same. These are distinct. I don't know. Try, so I they're, 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 they're different varieties of I don't like this. You know, well, <laughs> but that's good. I think the bottom line with gin is they're all going to have that influence of juniper, and you have to like juniper. And, and, and even and, this and, one's got juniper influence, and mm-hmm. I love juniper, so this is easy for me. And This is spicy, though. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that spice note at the finish. Yeah. I have to say this Roku, I think, is one of my favorite gins I've tried, and me too. In, in years. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a break from thinking about the most famous use of juniper, which is, of course, gin. And we're going to 
look at a few other ways to use it because it is something that does go really well with quite a bit of other flavors. One of the most famous places where it gets used, and we won't really go into much detail about that today, but I do want to mention it because it is, uh, it might even be number two behind gin, is juniper as a flavoring in sauerkraut. When you're salting your cabbage and adding the brine to the sauerkraut, it's really common to add juniper to the kraut. So by all means, experiment with juniper in pickling. It gives it like a round, like a sweetness. There's another dimension there. And the other really classic place in, at least in European cooking, where juniper gets used a lot is game sauces and sauces for meats. It goes really well, particularly it's legendary with venison. If you're looking for something interesting to cover your moose with, you're going to want to listen to this. But this sauce that we're about to make will also go very well with salmon. It'll go really well with pork. Juniper and meat do really well together. Uh, there's something about that kind of piquant nature of juniper that really sits nicely with uh, a lot of different preparations of meat. And so we will make a salmon sausage later that it's going to involve juniper. But right now I want to do a really simple recipe it's maybe the simplest of the classic French sauces. It's called sauce soubise. All it is, is an, it's an onion sauce. And this particular version of it, I'm going to add juniper to it as well to give it just that little perkiness that juniper brings. So soubise is a white sauce. Traditionally, the old school French method, because old school French uh, sauce making always use roux, those aren't very common anymore. Nowadays, typically sauces are based either on stock or cream, reduced stock or reduced cream. In this case, it's a white sauce, so it's going to be based on reduced cream. The reason is, is that basically roux thickened sauces tend to be heavier, especially if they're not well made. Sauces based, the more modern sauces based on cream or stock they tend to be a lot lighter tasting, a lot lighter on the palate. The one advantage that a roux-based sauce has over any of the more modern sauces is that you can broil them. You know, you can brown them in the oven for making like gratins. You know, anything au gratin, that's really what it... You know, nowadays we think of au gratin and we think it means cheese. The original was basically, it meant that whatever was gratinade was covered with a white sauce and run under the broiler. They're not that common anymore. They're, you know, that particular style of doing particularly vegetables is kind of out of fashion in part because it is super heavy and it's super filling. But the French still love their sauces, so they've adapted them all. So Subis used to be a white sauce that was made with a bechamel, which is a white roux-based sauce. And nowadays it is a white sauce that is made around reduced cream. And the classic... Subis, literally the ingredient list is onions and cream and salt, of course. But for this one, I'm going to infuse some juniper into the cream so we get a little bit of an extra dimension of flavor. A straight Subis is also an awesome sauce. It is maybe the best sauce in the world for pork tenderloin or any kind of a pork loin roast. It's unbelievable. So if you take the exact same thing that we're about to do and leave out the juniper berries, you will also have a fantastic sauce. So I have juniper berries. I have a lot of them. I used to make juniper sausage and I wound up with quite a stash of dried juniper berries. Uh, they're not very expensive. There are juniper berries somewhere in Alaska. I know this because a guy brought me some one time, brought me a little jar. He's like, there's more where this came from. And I was like, where did these come from? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. Juniper is a mountain plant. So if you're hiking around in the mountains, you will probably come across some. I've never seen them in Homer, but that does not mean that they are not around. Um, I am not an expert on wild plants at all. But there are many experts of wild plants around here. Now, in part because I have so many juniper berries, and in part because I want an intense juniper flavor, I'm going to use quite a bit. I got probably a full cup of dried juniper berries, and I am just going to smush them up just a little bit in my mortar and pestle just to help release the flavor. What I'm gonna do, the fastest way to infuse anything is to heat your cream. I am in fact going to need some infused cream for the salmon sausage that I'm gonna be making. So I'm gonna do it all at once. About a cup of juniper berries into a quart of heavy cream. I'm gonna heat it up. I'm just gonna let it stay heated for just a little bit. 
And then I'm going to strain it out and I'm going to take part of the cream, put it aside because it needs to be chilled for the salmon sausage. I'll put it aside with the juniper berries still sitting in it so that they're going to infuse really heavily. And then I'll take the other part of the cream and I'll reduce that and then make the sauce with that. Generally, when you're making a sauce with cream, you want to reduce the cream. Don't just pour the cream in. It's going to be too thin and it's going to... I've seen people do it. <laughs> it's it's kind of sad. You know, they just pour some cream out and heat it up and add a couple of flavorings to it. And it's like, no. And here goes a whole quart of cream. Okay, those guys are going. And now I'm going to deal with my onions. So this is a fairly small amount of uh, sauce. So I think it's only going to need one onion. So these onions are going to get, they're not going to get caramelized fully, but they are going to get sauteed down a little bit because I want them to turn kind of sweet, kind of soft. I want to mellow out that onion flavor. Uh, a lot of traditional recipes do call for blanching the onions. Um, I'm not going to do it. I've never done it. The idea behind the blanching the onions is that you're gonna mellow out the flavor even more. Um, you're gonna lose a lot of that sharp onion bite. Honestly, I find sauteing them for long enough, you're gonna lose it anyway. But I'm not a three Michelin star cook. I don't know. I don't know if those guys still, still blanch their onions or not. Escoffier blanched his onions. I lied, I said onions and cream were the only ingredients in salt. And of course, I forgot to tell you, butter, obviously. It wouldn't be classical French cooking without butter. This part of the process is exactly like caramelizing onions. You just stop before they're caramelized. Really, they're going to they're gonna go about 10 minutes or so, just enough to maybe get a really, really, really pale color on them, but I don't want them sweet. This is not going to be a sweet sauce. I want them to still have a little bit of onion bite to them, a little onion flavor. So onions to the butter salt to the onions. This is going to be about a 10 minute process. A little past the stage of merely sweated, but before the stage of starting to caramelize. Um, so I thought for cocktails we could do, I think it's hot, let's do two. <laughs> Um, but I thought we'd start with a classic martini, but I want to make it the way a martini is actually supposed to be made. Ooh. With vermouth? With vermouth. What? <laughs> um, How else do you make it? Well, you know, they do so, the, the swizzle thing where they, they put a little dash of vermouth and they yeah. swirl it around and throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. no. It, should, no. It, it should be one third vermouth, two thirds gin. Oh, that's a lot of vermouth. It is. You know what Julia Child's favorite cocktail was? The upside down martini. Oh. Two thirds vermouth, one third gin, and actually they're and delicious. You could drink more that way too. <laughs> and the glass is upside down um, above her head. But yeah. what I will say before we get into this, I think it's worth diving into. I think a lot of the reason that people hate vermouth in their martinis is that they go to a bar that has a bottle of Martini and Rossi that's been open mm -hmm. for a year and sitting out. Vermouth, when it's open, should last about a week. It's a wine, um, or ah. it's a wine product. Um, it should be refrigerated after it's opened. And there's different quality levels. What really stands out to me is that a bottle of Martini and Rossi is $12. And to me, what is the best vermouth on the market, which is what we're going to use, which is Dolan, which comes from the French Alps, is $18. That's a tiny difference yeah, a for a, a quality jump that's exponential. And I, I have had a bottle of that in my cupboard for three years. So I'm going to go home I, and dump I, that I, out. I, I was going to Rossi. I, no, no, no. That, don't don't do oh. Yeah. No, definitely. Wow, I didn't just, know that. <clears throat> yeah, you should refrigerate it after you open it. If it's refrigerated, you might get two to three weeks. But the other nice thing with a, a nice vermouth like Dolan, it's really drinkable on its own. Dolan mm. on the rocks with a twist of lemon in the summer is one of my mm. absolute favorite drinks. It's light, it's low in alcohol, but it has plenty of flavor. So, you know, buy it for your martinis, but then don't forget that it's in your fridge. Right. So what, it, what makes vermouth vermouth as opposed to just another still wine? It's aromatized. So after the wine is made, 
they and they add aromatics and then let that age uh, fine and filter it off and then bottle it. So you could say that vermouth is the gin of wines. In a way, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> all right. So um, one thing I do think that people sometimes forget, and I've heard people say that they get particularly mean on gin or that it's a a, a, a rough drink for them is that it's higher proof than pretty much every other spirit behind the bar. Jameson or Crown Royal, or they all sit around 80 proof, or they sit at 80 proof. Gins normally start at about 84 and then go up to 110. So I think Tangeray, for example, if I remember right, is 96 proof. Whoa. So a couple of Tangeray and tonics is different from a couple of Crown and Cokes. Um, one other thing when you're making a martini, so all I've done is two-thirds, one-third. I know that there are those really fancy twist makers that give you that curly cue. They're generally pretty terrible um, in that they carve too deep and they get a lot of the pith with the actual zest itself. Whereas if you use a Y peeler like we just did, you end up with just zest. And another good trick. Burning your lemon. Mm -hmm. Burning your lemons. Really? <clears throat> on the outside or inside? On the outside. It pulls all the oils out and you get more aromatics for your buck. <laughs> So you just had one-third, or, yeah, one-third vermouth, two-thirds two noodles, and a, a lemon and a lemon twist. lemon twist that you slightly burned. And shaken, not stirred. You can stir or shake. I think for a martini, shaken is actually the way I prefer it. That's a personal preference, but also... It's hot. It is hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'd rather this was as cold as possible. That's fine. <laughs> it does make a difference. But when you smell it, it's inter the vermouth and gin interact in a really interesting way to me. I Are any of the uh, botanicals and aromatics in vermouth yes, common to gin? They are. Okay. A, a number of them cross paths. Certainly not the juniper or the, those kind of sprucey ass, or not sprucey, but mm. those uh, piney aspects. Thank you. But a lot of the, the floral stuff crosses over. That is a lot of vermouth, which I'm not used to. Mm -hmm. It's good, though. That's but it's a, it's a totally different drink. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, when you put two drops of vermouth in and shake it, it's just cold gin. Yeah. Right? It's not a martini. Yeah. <laughs> it's my first benzene lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> the lemon is strong. I like what you did with the lemon, the way you peeled it and burned it. I'll remember that for something else, but <laughs> there you go. Sweet. Yeah, drink up. But, I mean, that, that's a classic martini. If I was at, I'm not going to name a bar because I'd be bad, but um, if I was at a dive bar where I saw the bottle of martini and Rossi behind the bar, this is not the way that I would want a martini. Actually, I'd probably say go vodka, skip the vermouth, then throw some olives in it, mm. and then you're just drinking olive juice. When you're in a place that has the right stuff, a real martini is a treat, and this is a lot lower proof than cold gin. You know, if, if you just have shaken gin... Maybe you can have two, mm -hmm. <laughs> but a martini you can actually have and sip and have a couple and it's not going to put you on your lips. You can actually have more than two, just, well, just to clarify that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you could definitely have way more of these, that's for sure. And it goes down, I mean, it goes down easy. I know I'm still not a fan, but I, I would hope that that mellowed out some of that for you, but maybe not. It's still... Um, I mean, it's still gin. It's still a gin. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also, uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards um, a moonshine, and you do get that raw spirit out of that sometimes, whether you're using grain or corn or even rhubarb, and I'm getting right. that bite out of the gin that I don't get out of other spirits. All right, it's been about 10 minutes. I'm going to go ahead. I've got my onions are translucent looking. They're nice and soft. But they haven't really started to brown. They've, there's a little bit of a very, very pale sort of uh, brownish yellow on them. But they're definitely not even close to approaching true caramelization. So I'm going to turn those off. And my cream is starting to infuse nicely. I just taste it a little bit. And there is a really nice, round, juniper, resiny sort of lovely lovely flavor to to uh to the cream now 
So I'm going to go ahead and stop it now, and then I'm going to reduce the rest of the cream. Always be careful, particularly when you start out with cream, keep an eye on it, because when it first comes to the boil, until you get it right, until you get it down to a nice, a nice simmer, it's gonna, it's gonna bubble a lot and it's gonna want to explode all over the stove. It didn't happen to me this time, but it has happened to me in the past and it's a mess. So I'm going to strain the cream first. I'm reserving these juniper berries because I, I want to, I want to put them back into the cream to chill overnight in the fridge to make my mousseline tomorrow because this, then it'll be super, super intense. And I started out with a quarter cream. It's reduced a little bit, not very much right now. And so probably for this amount, I'm going to reduce about two cups or so, maybe slightly less. And that is going to be the base for my sauce. And I'm going to reduce that by probably about a half at least. Reducing cream, it's always a little different. Like this is 30% cream. I actually prefer uh, 40% cream, but you can only get that in half gallons here. I have a hard time using that much cream ever in a, in a home situation. It just, it takes forever. So I'm going to reduce this cream and I'm also going to add my onions directly to the cream now and let them infuse their oniony deliciousness. Kill two birds with one stone. They will soften further because the next step is going to be after this, after I get my cream down to about where I want it to be, then the next step is going to be pureeing. I am going to do it today in a food processor because my preferred tool, my stick blender, um, which is the best thing for doing stuff like this, it died this winter and I haven't gotten around to replacing it. They're really cheap. Even the cheap ones are okay for stuff like this. Like if you're really going to use it a lot, it's probably worth spending a little bit of money to get the beefier ones, but for really basic things like this, where you're just pureeing things that are already pretty soft, you know, it's okay to use a, the cheapies. Better motors are always better, but I got I got by for years with a, like a $20 one. But today, because my stick blender's busted, I'm gonna use a food processor. The classic definition for kinda a good sauce thickness is, uh, is that it coats the back of your spoon, and that if you draw a line in it, with your fingernail, the line stays visible even if you sort of rotate the spoon around. And it means that when you when you go to add it to the food, it won't just all run off, you know, and puddle up and run all over the plate and look like garbage. But it also won't just sit there in like a big unappealing blob. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, I just took a took a whiff of it and it's definitely got a really nice strong juniper component to it. This over salmon. Oh man. This over moose, so good. You know, it's a nice, it's a good year-round sauce, though, because it is, it's substantial enough that, you know, if you're, like, it would stand up easily to grilled meats, cook something on the grill, and a sauce like this will keep, you know, if you're having some people over for the weekend, you can make it the day before, and then just heat it up the next day. Yeah, I got a real distinct line now on the back of my spoon, so I'm fairly, I'm pretty comfortable with this as being a good, uh, last thing to do is give it a little taste. Oh, yeah. You know, I had thought about maybe I should add some, some herbs and stuff, maybe some thyme, something like that. I do not. That is sensational. It's, um, you know, it, the juniper is definitely in the forefront, um, and there's a rich texture to it, and I'm getting a little hint of the onions. That's about to get a lot bigger because I'm going to puree them. And once I do that, they're going to come a little further forward in the mix, which is kind of one of those things that it really took me a long time to appreciate about food is the way that textures and flavors interact. You know, it's not, it really isn't just a matter of like, let's put all these ingredients in the same thing and in the same bowl, and now it'll taste like all of them. Well, no, you've got to, you got to process them in such a way throughout the whole procedure. You know, every time you, you do something to the texture, it changes the way that the flavors interact. And this is a really classic example of that because Right now it's super junipery, and I'm about to put it in the food processor, and it's going to suddenly turn into an onion sauce. See how that looks. Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, now it's intense smelling. Mmm. Oh yeah. Now the onion has come to the forefront, and the juniper is sitting just underneath it, and oh wow, it's delicious. I'm gonna remember this sauce because that is tasty. And I'm just going to run it through a strainer one more time. 
you know, getting rid of these little chunks. This is high-end sauce making is totally about texture and, and making things like super, super smooth. And part of what's going on here is now I'm trying to get rid of the, the fibrous chunks of the onion. Because, and the reason is, is they don't, they don't contribute anything. They contribute some body to the sauce, you know. And there are some sauces that are based around pureed vegetables where you puree them really hard for a really long period of time and that generates most of the, the body of the sauce. But in something like this, most of the body that we're looking for is coming out of the cream. We don't really want the little chunky bits. And once you've gotten rid of that fiber, the way that the sauce just coats your whole mouth, it's so silky and it's so, so, oh, this is great. Yeah, a nice chunk of mousse backstrap or a nice, a nice filet of salmon. This, this would be dynamite. It'd be even better if you can get Alaska juniper. So those of you who are wild plant people, save your juniper. So then I thought... I do a twist on a gin and tonic, but since we're sitting in a greenhouse, we have some stuff here we can just grab. Um, and I happen to have in my car a peach because we got these beautiful peaches just shipped up from California. <laughs> um, and peach uh, basil, please. Thai basil? Uh, actually, straight basil if you have it. Uh, I don't actually have regular basil. Thai basil will work. You're gonna you're gonna get some fennel notes. How much you want? A couple. Yeah, that's kind of perfect. Uh, you don't have a knife on you, do you? Uh, you know what? I do. Oh. <laughs> At one point I did. Wait, here we go. Yeah, five Alaskans sitting around a greenhouse <laughs> drinking gin. Not one of them has a knife. Not really. Not. It's not super clean, but uh, it'll, whatever. It'll, for this, it's fine. Basil works really well with gin, and actually, as do peaches. Um, it's funny, this is actually a combination that also works really well with bourbon. But I think that's one where... If you're trying to create a, a fun cocktail at home, gin is unique in a way in that it can take the place of both white and brown spirits in traditional cocktails. So like a gin old fashioned is absolutely delicious. But so all we're gonna do here is muddle, fresh peaches, Thai basil. And you just put about two slices of peach in there, right? Two slices of peach, four leaves of Thai basil. And forget the gin and give it to Patty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I think for this, the Roku is going to work really well. Boy. Yeah. We'll add some my ice. Yeah. So we're going to start with this, but it's not done yet. It's done yet. It's getting wet. Tonic? Ooh. Tonic. All right. And for this, you're definitely going to want ice. But I think this is a good example of where you can use gin not masking its flavors, but accentuating them in a way that still makes, that keeps it a gin cocktail, but for the, sorry, for the gin hater might pull that back enough. Maybe not enough. As long as he doesn't hate peaches, I think we're good. Oh, that's great. That does well, not taste like gin at all. I mean, the, you can't complain about that. <laughs> I haven't been complaining. I've oh, just been, been, uh, you've been expressing. You, yeah. you can't express like you've expressed. That's why, that's why I'm here. That's right. The aromatics oh, yeah. are beautiful. The peaches and yeah, the basil. But I, I like that you still get at the back end that peppery note that the mm -hmm. Roku has. It's so it's not just completely masking the gin. But you don't even really taste peach. You no. Know, it kind of neutral, it, almost it, neutralizes it, something well, else. It is Alaska peaches, so... <laughs> no, no, no. These were flown up from California yesterday. Whoa! Uh -huh. <laughs> oh. That's one expensive peach. Yeah. They are. <laughs> Very tasty, though. Yeah. Uh, it's not bad. I wouldn't want to drink a whole one, but it's uh, it, it's got nice fruity flavor. I can taste the basil. Uh, it's definitely dumbed down the gin enough to be tolerable. <laughs> but I imagine you could do this with just about any alcohol. And I mean, certainly you, you can. Know? But but I, like what I was saying, what I like with this is that the gin is still there. It's not completely gone. No, it's not. I, whereas, if you made the same cocktail with vodka, I don't think you'd have any character left. I think um, you'd get a whole lot more down your throat, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, why I'm here. I'm here to anchor you people. That's good. <laughs> I will say, just for the record, this recipe does work really well with bourbon also. <laughs> I will try that later. Oh. <clears throat> Sounds yeah, pretty good. Peaches and basil and bourbon. 
I think I've got a new favorite cocktail, you know, for summer. Especially. Is, there, is there an official name for this? Come on, Patrick, make it up. I, I'm trying to think. I, Patrick's I started, peachy. I, was like, I started this, or I came up with this when I was at WD-50, and, oh. but using bourbon. And I think I've carried this cocktail into three restaurants since. <laughs> and I don't remember any of the names I've ever given. <laughs> That's bad. Wow, I really actually can't remember one. <laughs> Obviously, you drank too many of them. Right? Apparently. <laughs> but I think as a twist on a gin and tonic, I mean, again, the gin comes through, the tonic comes through, but you still get those other added aspects, and, and, it and it's a malaria. nice summery drink. Yeah, it fights mm-hmm. malaria. It fights malaria. <laughs> and so I don't know if you talked about this earlier in the show, like at some point, but I always thought it was funny that people think that tonic water was invented to go with gin, but in fact... The British gave soldiers gin to make them drink the tonic water. <laughs> it was it was because the tonic was too displeasant. <laughs> because of the quinine. Because of the quinine, they needed the quinine to not get scurvy. Right. Malaria. They wouldn't drink or malaria. Was it, malaria? it was yeah. malaria. You're right. So Scur- you, scurvy citrus. So what you're saying is so what you're saying is that if uh, if Pat had been in the British army. He would have died of malaria. <laughs> it, it is entirely like that. <laughs> well, I may have been able to slog my way through this punch bowl cocktail here. But, <laughs> but the straight chins, yeah, bring the malaria. <laughs> More drinks for us. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> On that note, I say let's get out of the greenhouse because yeah. it's really hot. It's, <laughs> it's going to feel so good when you walk out into the 80 degrees out there. Yeah, you just tortured us. <laughs> <laughs> So for my other juniper trick today, we're going to do something with salmon. Salmon and juniper are awesome together, as you might know if you've ever had, for instance, salmon with a martini. They really go together well. Salmon and and that piney sort of resinous flavor of juniper are like naturals for each other. And one of my favorite ways to do it, and I've made it a few different ways, I've done this basic same recipe. And it's based on a French preparation called a mousseline. And as you might guess from the name it's similar to a mousse. What it typically is, is fish, cream, and egg whites. You blend them all together, mix them up. There's a few different things that you can do with them. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So, but first of all, we'll just talk about the basic ratio. So the the ratio that I typically use that works well for me is two parts fish, one part cream, and for roughly one pound of fish or 500 grams um, up to that, one egg white. That is the basic ratio, and also 2% salt. People get mad when I only give weights and stuff in grams. The reason I do that is because I am not going to fool around and figure out what 2% of 16 ounces is. It's not going to happen. I do stuff in weight because it's a million times easier because you can scale up and down um, a lot simpler. You can work with what you have instead of what you wish you had. There's much less approximation. It's just easier all around. I'm unapologetic about this. It's never going to change. So this is a this is a the ideal recipe for all the little the little scrappy bits of salmon you've got left after you've filleted. You know you can use whole fillets if you want. It's just I tend to, this tends to be the kind of thing that I make with all the, the leftover stuff. You know that ordinarily you'd use to make like a salmon cake or salmon patties or stuff like that. This is just this is sort of a relative of those. It's a relative of like the salmon loaf. There are a lot of uh, Asian meatballs and fish balls that are very similar to this. They typically, the, the difference is they won't have cream. They'll have uh, more egg whites and usually some kind of starch like cornstarch or potato starch or rice starch. Or, uh, and so they have a firmer texture. These are very, these will turn out with a very, very light texture. So if you get bored of making fish cakes, try these. They're really easy. Two parts salmon to one part cream to one egg per every roughly 500 grams. I had about 200 grams of, a little over 200 grams of salmon. So then I added a little over 100 grams of cream. It's a little light, but I an egg white is not going to have a lot of flavor on its own. So it's not like going to overpower anything. So I just used one egg white. You got to kind of round up with that. And this this was the cream that I infused when I made the sauce sous vide. So it, it's been sitting overnight in the refrigerator. It's super intense. Um, very junipery, quite delicious. Everything needs to be really cold. Mousseline used to be a really fancy dish, and then refrigeration came along, and it gradually fell from haute cuisine because it got a lot easier to make. You used to have to keep everything super cold while you pounded it out in a big bowl, 
and it took forever and you had to keep it on ice and it was a huge deal. And then you had to run it through Tammy to get it really, really thin and fine. Nowadays, you just keep it cold, dump it in a food processor, let it go for a while. If you really want to be fancy, you can run it through a Tammy. I'm not going to do it today. If I was running a, a high dollar restaurant, I would run it through a Tammy. If I was running a bistro, I wouldn't bother. I'm going to get some water boiling because what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a sausage with it, but I'm not going to use, if I was making a bigger batch, I would probably go ahead and go through the trouble of, of using natural casings. I'm not going to do that because I just have a little bit and because I want to demonstrate that there are in fact other ways to make sausage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to puree all my stuff and then I'm just going to roll it up in plastic wrap and I'm going to poach that inside the plastic wrap. Then you pull it out, unroll it, and you've got a nice little tube of uh, lovely sausage. So in addition to my two part salmon, one part cream, one egg white, and 2% salt, and this is my juniper cream, remember. So my other flavorings in here are ginger, and I've got some dill and a little thyme, some black pepper, and a little tiny shot of cayenne pepper, because as the chef Eric Repair says, cayenne pepper is like turbo boost for fish. So I'm gonna puree this until it's nice and pureed. Obviously a lot of your texture will be controlled by how long you puree this for. I've got a nice paste. This is the point where again, if, if I was really set on impressing people or charging lots of money, I would run this through a Tammy, which is a drum sieve, which I've talked about on the show before, but I don't, I've never used it. Don't worry, I will use it once we do the episode where I make chicken liver pate because it is, it's critical, I think, to excellent chicken liver pate. Plastic wrap is what you use if you don't have a sausage stuffer or if you're just making a very, very small amount of a sausage. You can use it really for any kind of sausage. Pork sausage, it's totally fine. You just poach it and then unwrap it. The only real disadvantage to it is that then you don't you don't have the casing to sort of crisp up at the end. You know, you can't you don't get that snap. Got a nice chunk of plastic wrap. And I'm just going to dump it all in. Very simple. And by the way, you can use this same technique for any fish. But I said there were a few different ways that you could treat this exact same mixture. And the original mousseline was a dish called cannelles. They are most famous now as the shape that the dish was made in, because nowadays cannelles pretty much always are the little football-shaped things that you make with the spoons that fancy joints, they'll make their ice cream into one or their whipped cream. Or But the original cannelle was uh, that shape made with pike, I believe is what they used. And they made a, a mousseline out of pike, and they shaped it into that that shape, and they poached it in a cubillon. And a cubillon is a, a spiced stock, typically. It's always a fish, something you poach fish in. Uh, the French version, there is a Cajun version, but it's very different, at least in flavor. But a cubillon is a spiced stock of, of usually wine and herbs and fish fumé, or fish stock. You form this exact paste, this mousseline, into the little canal shapes, and you drop them and you poach them in there. They're very light, they're very delicate, and you serve them with a nice little sauce. And it's a very, it's a very, very old school, classical French cuisine dish. The other thing that you can do with this exact same mixture is make a terrine out of it. And remember, terrines, there's nothing scary about them. They're just a, they're the French word for meatloaf, basically. A terrine is the dish in which their versions of meatloaf are cooked. So a fish terrine, I could take this same this same mixture and put it into a nice terrine or some or a nice interesting mold or put it in a crust you know like you've seen i'm sure you've seen the the molds you know that you can lay a pastry crust in and then fill the fill it with this mixture and make a little pie out of it you can do all those different things with this exact mixture you could make a white king salmon mousseline and then you could make a regular colored salmon king salmon mousseline and you could make a layered terrine with you know layers of white and orange or salmon, normal colored king salmon. Terrines are kind of, they can be very simple, they can be very fancy. So I'm gonna give this another wrap or another couple of wraps. I don't wanna leak for sure, that would be bad. And now I have a nice little sausage of maybe an inch and a half across. And this one, this is maybe 10 inches long. 
and I don't want to boil this, you know, I don't want to get like a rolling boil. This is going to be a poach. And I'm actually just kind of getting up to poaching temperature. The ideal temperature to poach most things is when you've just got, you know, some nice bubbles starting to break at the surface, but the water's not like violent. It's not, you definitely don't want to boil. I think there's a lot, a lot of people make the mistake when they're poaching of letting their water come get too hot. And you want it to be very gentle. Drop that in. You can also do the same thing in a bain-marie, a water bath that you cook in the oven. Generally, I would say the uh, the 10 minutes per inch of fish is still still going to hold true for this. So I'll give it 10 or 15 minutes or so. Alright, I just pulled my sausage. It was maybe a little longer than 15 minutes. Attempt it, and it got... 142, which by the time it finishes cooking will be at 145, which is plenty for a sausage like this. Now, obviously, the more care you take to remove air from your sausage, the more attractive it will be. The more care you take shaping. That's one nice thing about natural casings is really easy to shape. Uh, one thing I will say, if you are going to use natural casings, don't fill them super full. Fill them a lot less full than you would fill like a, like a pork sausage because uh, the egg white and the cream will have a certain amount of air into, uh, beaten into them, and they will expand. And it's really easy when you poach your sausage afterwards to burst the skin. The nice thing about this sausage is that once it's poached, you can eat it hot, or you can let it cool to room temperature and eat it, or you can let it cool all the way down. It keeps very well. And uh, you can serve it cold, or you can rewarm it, you know, in some warm water. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to sear this unless it had a natural casing. But if you do case your sausage, oh, they sear really beautifully in a little bit of butter. There, it's, it's really good. Mmm. Oh. oh, that's good. You know, I highly encourage you to, to try this with your, with your leftover fish scraps. And you can use whatever flavorings you want to infuse your cream. But this is really beautiful. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guests were Pat Ahern, Grady Avant, Patrick Driscoll, and Mel Stratum. The gins for the tasting were graciously provided by Mel Stratum and the Grog Shop. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. This is the third episode of the summer 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.